Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Film Chat. We've decided to abandon the normal format of sitting around and talking about films in favor of an epic narrative following a World War II nurse who wants a child but not a husband. On encountering a dying, severely brain-damaged bald turret gunner with a permanent erection thanks to his priapism, she sees her chance. She rapes the gunner and later gives birth to a baby boy she names Garp after the only sound the brain-damaged soldier was able to make. Excuse me, I'm being told that story already exists in the form of the 1982 Robin Williams film The World According to Garp. Instead, we're switching over to a third format, talking about films and sitting around. I'm Sam Foster, and joining me... A man named after the only sound his father could make. Hello, how are you? Nice to meet you. Milks off and popping out past the solo so Ray, I'm going to do for you. Come here, Patty. I don't know. Ask your mom, Danny Moran. Or for short, <laughs> just Danny Moran. Uncanny. How do you know that? <laughs> On this week's film chat, I finally get round to reviewing the Oscar-nominated Brooklyn, despite the fact it came out months ago. Though in my defense, I only watched it like this morning. Then we both reviewed Trumbo, the biopic of blacklisted screenwriter Dalton Trumbo starring Brian Cranston. He was a put-upon dad and Malcolm in the middle, and a put-upon chemistry teacher slash drug lord in Breaking Bad, but can he play a put-upon writer? Yes. We also discussed the latest projects from Martin McDonough and Ava DuVernay, and examined all the movie information gleaned from the comically short but incredibly expensive trailers they played during the Super Bowl. I hope you enjoyed that shot of Matt Damon punching somebody with his shirt off, because it costs more than your fucking house. All of which leaves me just enough time to dreamcast my unofficial sequel to Ocean's 13, entitled Ocean's 13 Million. (laughs) A segment Katie has sworn to me will make the podcast. It's quite long, though. Films, 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 lots of films, 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 films. He's good films, bad films, fun films, sad films, films we love. Let's go straight to the most explosive piece of correspondence we received this week. Explosive because Danny was criticized. She doesn't like. Tim Rogers wrote in to say, just wanted to say quickly something about Room after the comments from Michael Patrick last week. I agree with him that the film is much more uplifting than Danny found it to be. The requiem for a dream comparison is definitely unwarranted. Yeah. And then he's just drawn a little picture of 
you hanging yourself. <laughs> Strange. However, he mentioned that it was a bit odd that the film was split into two halves with most people used to a three-act structure. I would say, it's taking on Mick as well, I would say, that's Tim, that it is a classic three-act film. Without wanting to get too spoilery, the first act obviously takes place in a room. Then he does get a little bit spoilery. Um, <laughs> but he makes this case that the bits that are not in room are also in two halves. And he says, it's the third and final act which transforms the film into an uplifting tale about human growth and potential. The final act was the most emotional that I've seen on the screen for a long time. And I just have to say that for my money, the film was perfectly structured. And there's another little picture of you. <laughs> Again, and well, someone's cutting you down and uh, burying you in a pauper's grave. You're entitled to your opinion, Tim. <laughs> you can't see what I'm doing, but you know. They were very dismissive scare quotes. Well, on the structure thing, I meant it more in the sense of like location. And there's definitely there's a, the first third or halfway, if you want to call it, the bit in the room is the heaviest. And for me, that's like the problem I couldn't overcome. And that's like too heavy. And as for the uplifting, I seem to be the only person who doesn't find it uplifting. And I think the reason why is like, it starts with like minus 100 misery and works its way up to zero, you know? And I feel like that's not uplifting. That's just like, <laughs> it's just not miserable anymore. Right, yeah. So, you know, I think it's easy to make anything uplifting when it's fucking horrible for the first, like, 40 minutes. Yeah. What should have happened <laughs> is that right at the end of the movie, they sort of draft him into the <laughs> local football team and he scores the goal at the end now of the Now, that would be uplifting. Because <laughs> that's, like, that's plus like five. To, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's making it into positive numbers on the misery so, scale. So, yeah. And I found the beginning too, like, horrible. It's like, I couldn't get over it. Maybe it's just me. Because, you know, people say it's uplifting, but she's not getting that seven years back, you know? But thank you, Tim. Thank, thank you, you, Tim. You've challenged me. Yes. You've challenged me. But you... And you've lived to tell the tale. <laughs> I completely disagree with everything you're saying, but, you know, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> he said through gritted teeth. <laughs> we can be friends. <laughs> so Chris Young got in touch. He went to see a advanced screening of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Mm -hmm. Pretty exciting. He says the following. Oi, film chat. I went to see an advanced screening of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. I just said that, Chris. Last night. And I want to bore you about it. Firstly, the whole event was inexplicably sponsored by Top Man. Why Top Man? Perhaps the weirdest bit of cross-branding I've seen. I think it's because the whole cast looks like Top Man models. Maybe that's it. Just cheekboned, young, pale men. Yeah. <laughs> also, we got goodie bags of canned water in them. I mean, really? Canned water? <laughs> <laughs> Both the sparkling and still varieties. Have so you ever seen a can of water before? <laughs> so as you can imagine, I was quite befuddled before the film even began. Onto the film itself, it was not good. There's a decent amount of zombie killings in the first two thirds of the film, but the whole affair was weirdly humorless and low energy. I think you're supposed to find the idea a lot more inherently funny than it actually is, because no extra effort is made to provide any other wits or energy. The only exception to this is Matt Smith, who makes a fun passing Collins and elicits a few laughs. I wasn't expecting this film to be good, but I was at least expecting it to be a bit crazy, a bit trashy, and mostly fun. It wasn't. At the end of the screen, there was a Q&A with Douglas Booth, who also stars in my favourite movie, LOL, and Alex Zane. But I gave that wide berth. I do now really want to stop at Topman and drink canned water, though. Well, Chris, thanks for writing in, and a can of water <laughs> will be heading its um, way to you soon. That's our new way of thanking our listeners who write in. How funny do you find the, like, just the premise, Prime, Prejudice, and Zombies? Not that funny. I think that the problem is that they're... There's already been a few of these kinds of trashy crossover <laughs> movies that weren't that exciting. And, yeah. you know, like lesbian vampire killers or um, Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter. 
Yeah. But which also suffers from the same problem that Chris identifies of kind of taking itself weirdly seriously, given the absurdity of the concept. <laughs> like, I don't know if anyone informed the director of Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter that it was a stupid, like, idea for a film. I think he just was like, of course Abraham Lincoln fights vampires. <laughs> um, let's make it awesome. And yeah, so maybe they have the same, the same issue here. Danny posted on the Film Chat Facebook page this week. It was linked to a blog by a fellow called Ashley Clark, who was raising the issue of actors who are really bad in really good films. And Quentin Tarantino is a serial offender in this regard. He keeps making great films and he keeps appearing in them and he's always shit in them. And one, uh, uh, the example that Ashley Clark was raising was Pulp Fiction, in which uh, Quentin Tarantino plays Jimmy. Yeah. Um, in probably not the film's greatest scene. Don't Jimmy me, Jules. Don't Jimmy me. Yeah, I, like he somehow has to, he's asked the impossible of himself, which is to like tell off and seem more like macho or like more of an alpha male than Samuel L. Jackson, which is just the most absurd notion ever. <laughs> They're not friends, are they? No. How are they friends, That's, Jules and this guy called why Jimmy? Why does Jules respect Jimmy so much? It makes absolutely no <laughs> sense. So Danny was asking our readers and listeners what other examples of this um, phenomenon they could think of, and a couple of them got in touch. Mick says, Cameron Diaz in Gangs of New York, my God. That is a famously bad accent, right? She's Irish. She's like, a fine pair of conversationalists yeah. you are. Yeah. <laughs> but even not as good as that genius accent on your face. <laughs> Imagine the bad Irish accent. Yeah, but... Um, you might contend with that. That's a great movie. Yeah, exactly. Is that movie good enough for her performance to be that much of a problem? It's already <laughs> not that great. Um, and the other example from Dan Knoll, the kid who plays H.W. in There Will Be Blood. I mean, that is legitimately a great film. I don't remember the kid being that bad. Is he that bad? I don't remember him being that bad, personally. I mean, Dan, uh, Dan needs to write in and elaborate on what's wrong with HW. It's a bit of a tall order for a child act against Daniel Day-Lewis. And it's like, what's <laughs> <laughs> wrong? This eight-year-old child is... <laughs> this guy's a load of shit. It's funny then. There's probably a whole subcategory of just like terrible child performances. The one that sprang to mind was the kid from Gran Torino. Uh, oh, yeah. The actor whose name that is Korean B. Guy. Vang. We discussed this before, but Clint is famous for doing two takes, and you reckon he's like, both those takes were shit, but, but um, <laughs> what are you going to do? Two, two takes, takes Clint. Two takes Clint. Maybe he's perfectly good, but it's just because he was nervous the first couple of times he said a line, and then that's it. You know, it's just immortalized. Can I have one more take, Clint? Shit. Yeah, we're moving no. on. One more take. Another suggestion I had was Jack Nielsen in The Departed. He's pretty bad in that film. I didn't think he was that bad. He's, he is bad. You must agree with me. <laughs> Well, that's a film full of like really good performances, a really good mm. ensemble, and he's just like not really agreeing to with the tone of the film. <laughs> you don't Everyone... think? I mean, well, I guess it is quite a cartoonish performance. <laughs> Everyone else is doing pretty solid work, and he's like just sort of turned up, and I'm not sure if any of those lines are written. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and. Everyone cites Andy McDowell and Four Weddings and a Funeral. You might question whether that's a great movie, but that's, yes. it's a movie everyone watches. I don't know. You know. Wait, Katie, are you saying that it is a great movie, or were you saying yes? I question it. Do you no. think Andy? Do you think movie. Andy McDowell's good in it? No. Okay, so that fits the that fits the bill. Who I would, would say. Pick Andy McDowell over Christian Scott Thomas. Yeah, that yeah, no that's sense. the big problem with the movie. There's the, the bit when Christian Scott Thomas is like, "I've loved you forever," and yeah, like, great, movie, like great, <laughs> let's go. You know, let's get together. I think this could really work. The movie's invested a lot of time in our relationship and made it really convincing. Oh, no, wait, I'll go with a woman who's only been in one scene. A woman with so little friends, she invites all of my friends to her wedding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, 
you know, the obvious pick is Robert Redford in Captain America, The Winter Soldier. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think what makes the question work is like not the movie doesn't have to be a classic, but it's just the distance between the quality of the movie and the quality of the performance. And Winter Soldier is not a great film, it's pretty quote good. unquote, but it's pretty good. It's one of the better superhero movies to come out recently. And Robert Redford, yeah, he has no idea what's going on in, a, in his own performance. That film. <laughs> <laughs> He's reading it's all really... the lines off pieces of paper. Exactly. Yeah. Of, it's, really, it's a real special thing about the movie. Superhero films announced, casting rumors leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated. Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated. Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped. Matt Damon's in a viral vid. Michael Bay's made a mint. That's the news that's fit to print. It was the Super Bowl this week. Did you watch the Super Bowl, Danny? Did I? No, I didn't. Yeah, and so whenever this happens, people tend to talk about the adverts. Those are a big deal, aren't they? Because they're so expensive. Everyone's watching the Most Super Bowl. Most expensive airspace. Or... There is. There is, yeah. Yeah, and there's a, always a bevy of film advertisements. Did you watch them? They're not very long because even the Megabuck Studios can't afford it anymore yeah. about 25 seconds. Oh, but... yeah, I watched them all. It's quite funny, really. Maybe this will just be the future of trailers in general. They'll just be reduced under like four seconds of all the money shots. It's like, hard you know. to do a really great trailer in that time, isn't it? Yeah. What was your favourite? Well, probably the Jason Bourne one because it was the it's first new? footage. That's true, yeah. The rest was more like recut versions of trailers you've already seen. Exactly. Yeah. What did you think of Jason Bourne? Now, well, it's, first of all, we know now it's we know the now title, it's called, it's called, Jason, it's called Bourne. Jason Bourne. It's following the Rocky Balboa kind <laughs> of um, uh, Rambo, Rambo, John Rambo thing of <laughs> yeah. just like you know when your franchise is running out of steam, you just call the movie your character's name. So it didn't really give that much away. Um, I think it was mainly the main purpose of the trailer is like, it's Matt Damon and he's in shape. It's another Bourne film. I think that, you know, and it certainly conveyed those messages. He's doing some bare knuckle boxing, which is becoming a bit of a trope, right? When your hero is, yeah. you, know, you want to show a hero getting down and dirty and he's just doing some bare knuckle boxing. Like they keep doing that. That struck me as like, I mean, it's obviously wild speculation from about six seconds worth of, <laughs> of footage. Mm. But, uh... I would be annoyed if Bourne's, like, that's what he's doing, you know? It, it doesn't sit right with me. I thought his character would be off somewhere isolated. Well, the just... beginning of the Bourne supremacy, he's just sort of chilling. Exactly. Yeah. That's what's kind of cool about the character. Like, he doesn't get his hands dirty until he has to. Yeah, he only fights when he's really up against the wall. Exactly. Well, maybe so... there'll be some bit in the movie where he really has to make money and he can't get hired at a bar and, like, the library <laughs> fires him, you know, and... His only choice is bare-knuckle boxing. Also, with bare-knuckle boxing, doesn't give him a chance to improvise loads of weapons, which is half of the born fun. That's a good point, yeah, because it would be illegal if you grabbed a magazine and rolled it up and, like, sprayed vodka in the guy's face. and you know, Exactly. Yeah, wouldn't be allowed in the ring. Yeah, but I have some faith that it'll be good fun. Greengrass and uh, Damon haven't steered us wrong yet in the Bourne franchise. Absolutely. I also watched the very brief trailer for X-Men Apocalypse, which I really would like to be good. But And I was sort of watching the next one because I was kind of hoping that it would look more appealing than it has so far. But it still looks a bit bad. It looks a bit bad. It still looks like it could be it's a bit bad. It's weird like, looking at Brian Singer's this and his last X-Men movie and, and the, the ones he made in the early noughties, which are like, quite serious and mm. you know try to uh, ground them in the real world. And now there's just like a giant blue guy. Everyone's wearing bright colors, flying everywhere. I guess that's the sort of climate of blockbusters we're in now. Like, Marvel Universe has sort of changed it. Yeah, yeah. The, was... the, the original X-Men movie now is sort of charmingly, like, low-key. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but also, he's taking over from the Matthew Vaughnified X-Men universe. Yeah. Which is... Uh, yeah. It's a bit of that. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah. Uh, moving on, Marlon McDonough, the director of In Bruges and Seven Psychopaths and prolific playwrights. He's currently Hangman's on the West End, I think. Mm. Might still be playing. There are some new details about um, the next film he's making, which is called Free Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. And it's about... Just, sorry, what's it called? Free Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Okay. Uh, in his own words, he says, it's about a 50-year-old woman whose daughter is murdered and she goes to war with the police in her hometown because she thinks they're more interested in torturing black people than getting justice. And Oscar-winning actress Frances McDormand has signed on to play the lead, which is exciting stuff. Apparently, he's had this written for a few years... But obviously now it just seems super zeitgeisty. But yeah, it sounds awesome. I wasn't a big fan of Sims, uh, Seven Psychopaths, but In Bruges is brilliant. In Bruges is great. And, of... Yeah, and it sounds a little bit more, uh, or it sounds a bit different. This kind of like yeah, political Seven is a bit tinged revenge thriller. Yeah, Seven Psychopaths, it's too breezy for its own good. It's kind of meaningless. Yeah, it sounds really cool. And Frances McDormand is an awesome actress who we don't get to see enough of. Also, the reason why we haven't seen Frances McDormand that often, perhaps, is because there just isn't that many roles for women over 50 in Hollywood, unless exactly. you're Meryl Streep. Or she's 60 now. Well, it's true, but that, but that like, rule, you know, the few actresses who um, that's not true of are kind of the exceptions who prove the rule. You can just tell, like, the few roles that exist, they only go to the same few people. It's yeah, like yeah. Helen Mirren, um, Meryl Streep, and like, that's pretty much it. Julianne Moore, maybe now she's in her right. 50s. Yeah, maybe Julianne Moore, exactly. But 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 yeah, absolutely. There's not many. There's not nearly enough good roles for middle-aged women, which is a point I'm going to be making a bit later about Trombo's wife, Lupita Nyong'o. Uh, if I'm saying that correctly, who was made famous by Twelve Years a Slave, and who has been in a few things since. Most recently, The Force Awakens as that sort of green Yoda, um, Maz Kanata, goblin creature, Maz Kanata. One of our upcoming projects is a film called Intelligent Life, which is written by the Jurassic World duo Colin Trevorrow and Derek Connolly, who did not write a particularly good script. But But. maybe they'll do better with an original property. This one is based on a script they wrote called The Ambassador, which has the concept of a man who works in a department created to represent humanity in the event of alien contact. So they were created... They twiddle their thumbs for decades and decades. Alien contact <laughs> hits. They're all like, got to dust off yeah, yeah. my old files and, you know, actually do a job. And uh, this guy, this fellow, falls for a mysterious woman who will presumably be in Yongo if she takes the role, who turns out to be an extraterrestrial. So, I don't know. Maz Kanata? Maybe they'll um, drop her in from the Star Wars yeah, franchise. They've already got the, uh, you know, the skin textures created in CGI and stuff. Yeah, exactly. And the director that they've got lined up is the Helmer of Selma, the Selma Helmer, Ava DuVernay, um, who recently turned down Black Panther that Marvel was trying to get her to direct. Yeah. Um, and she's moved on to this project. And Selma was really good movie. Oscar yeah, yeah. snubbed. By those racists. By the racists. <laughs> the famously racist Academy snubbed her before. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say that it's exciting that a project with a black lead and a black director isn't about race necessarily yeah although people said you know 12 years a slave and like recent oscary movies or prestige pictures have always been uh black people playing servile roles mm. or it's about a race issue or 
similar. I don't know if I'm going to be proved wrong and like the alien's going to be a metaphor for immigration or something. Yeah. But yeah, like a sci-fi movie with people of color. No, that's absolutely true. I mean, that's something that was raised as well around the whole Oscar so white controversy that the movie like Creed is maybe not how, what people think of as like a black, when I say people, I mean like the Academy or voters that they don't, like that's not how they expect black films to be. And that's why it was a bit sidelined. Yeah. What is that? People say that's a factor because it's not like about racism directly or something like that. Um, so yeah, that's def- that's definitely um, definitely a good point, and definitely something to look forward to. She's a very talented woman, judging by that one film I saw. Yeah, and she's really cool in interviews. She really calls it how she sees it. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it astoundingly poor? How did Danny form a judgment? We're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. So Brooklyn which has been out for ages and got lots of critical love, which we didn't see at the time. I blame the shit trailer. Yeah, that's, exa- that's the reason I didn't see it as well. And this really plinky-plonky trailer that made it look really generic and then turned out everyone loved it. Exactly. Um, so to briefly go over the plot, it's set in the 1950s and Saoirse Ronan plays Elise. She's a young Irish woman from a small town in County Wexford in Ireland, sort of small village where everyone knows each other. And she emigrates to New York where she works in a department store. And there she begins a relationship with an Italian plumber called Tony. Hey, I'm Tony. That's how he kind of talks. Uh, but faces temptation from another man called Jimmy. Hey, by Jimmy. <laughs> oh, I'm Jimmy. <laughs> that's how he talks. Played by Donald Gleason when she returns to her homeland for a visit. And that's pretty much the entire... That's the synopsis and also the plot of the movie because it's quite a slight film. Here is a clip of Elise and Tony walking home after they've just met at a church dance. I'm not Irish. You don't sound Irish. I need to make this clear. No part of me is Irish. I don't have Irish parents or grandparents or anything. I'm Italian. Well, my my parents are, anyway. So what were you doing at an Irish dance? Don't the Italians have dances? Yeah, and I wouldn't want to tell you the one. They behave like Italians only. What does that mean? Oh, you know. No. Hands. Too many of them. I don't know. I guess it could seem that way if he was a girl. Listen, I want everything out in the open. I came to the Irish dance because I really like Irish girls. And I was the only one who would dance with you. Oh, no, it wasn't. Oh, so you danced with loads of others. So I thought this was an excellent drama. It's very slight. Uh, sort of coming of age story and I think the reason why the trailer was bad because it's hard to sell a movie which is so sort of slow and tonal and nothing super dramatic happens no mm. one runs anywhere in this movie it's all you know takes its time and the dramatic stakes are kind of sort of low there's no it's kind of refreshing how there's no sort of villains or bad people everyone's sort of nice mm. but it's still really really interesting and I guess the dramatic stakes are kind of relative to the focus of the film and by zeroing in on this one woman's emotional journey all the small decisions she makes carry a lot of weight and uh, it really it's a bit like life I guess in that respect and it really swept me along so the big reason why this movie works is that Saoirse Ronan is just amazing in it and she completely carries the film and it's sort of unconventional in this sense is that the character is quite passive for a large period of the um, movie it's like her sister organizes her, this trip to New York and sets her up a job and she stays in a boarding school, and then this guy asks her out, and you're like, she's sort of going along with everything. 
But her performance is so good that you get a complete sense of all like her interior life and all the conversations are quite mannered and, you know, everyone's super polite and it's, you know, super British in that respect. But you just get a sense of, you know, even when they're just discussing the, you know, day-to-day mundane stuff. Yeah. You get a sense of a, you know, an emotional spectrum. So it's directed uh, really well by John Crowley, who directed uh, Boy A and Is Anybody There, that Michael Caine old man movie. And Intermission. And Intermission. Which is also very good. He does a brilliant job on the material, and this might come across as like a slightly backhanded compliment, but it's impressive how the film isn't bad and could easily be. It's like it's such a sort of uh, specific tone he manages to create, mm. and because there's so little happening in terms of you know actual uh, dramatic developments, it could easily be dull. And because there's such a focus on minutiae, it could easily become really self-important or almost like comical. But he judges it perfectly. And so I was completely swept along with it. So um, the script is by Nick Hornby, adapting the book uh, by Colm Toliban. hope I pronounced that right. And he does a pretty good job on the material because I imagine the book must be... It's that sort of classic thing of the interior monologue, which is so kind of crucial to a book you can't do in a film. But I guess he's got... Um, a track record of this because he did the same sort of thing with Wild, and it's a really well paced story. There's a slight kind of smorgasbord of like nuance with various characters, like Saoirse Ronan and the sort of principal players have a lot to do, and there's some quite broad strokes with like other some of the supporting players. Like uh, Tony's got a sort of almost sitcom Italian American family with a sort of plucky eight year old brother who's like very clever and uh, like super mouthy and it's like what? Yeah. So like, you expect a sort of track laughter on it but it's a bit like those scenes that sort of this is the comedy scene and you know the I rest. think it's that's very yeah it's very common isn't it when you have <laughs> the characters who you don't need to develop that well you just need them to be entertaining and they just fall back on like the immediate stereotype yeah yeah first thing you think of but that generally doesn't really matter too much because the acting's so good and it's very much a sort of performance driven movie and there's some really excellent supporting terms from Jim Broadbent uh, Julie Waters and Donald Gleason. They're just sort of those kind of typically good actors you can just sort of put in any movie and always good in them. Yeah. So, you know, safe pair of hands. That's why people put them in almost everything. <laughs> exactly. That's why he's always getting work. He's so good. Another thing I really liked about the movie is that it was a period film which didn't make me, like, relieved that I lived in the modern world. By which I mean, there's not, although it's authentic, she doesn't emigrate out of poverty. And it's not dwells on like the social injustice of being a woman or single woman in New York. You can imagine there's probably like a sort of slightly grimmer take on the material. But the focus of the film is how it's about her journey and her choices are made by her for like emotional reasons. And the sort of question of whether she'll stay or whether she'll go isn't down to money or, you know, poverty or whatever, anything like that. It's all about her. So, yeah, I really I thought it was really, really good. It's a bit sort of a strange movie. I can't. I think it's really good, but it's so sort of slight. It's like, hard to be that passionate about yeah, it. Yeah, I was sort of like very satisfied by it. It was like, a, you know, a yeah. good meal. I was it like, sounds really yes. good. It sounds really good. It sounds like the sort of thing that it would be not too challenging to put on, but just like a cheerful, pretty film with nice people in it and it's yeah. well done. And what you were saying earlier about how uh, it avoids all these pitfalls or it could so easily be bad, I think that that's the kind of movie that I thought it would be based on the promotional material. Yes, like exactly. Judy Walters is this sort of funny old aunt and Saoirse Ronan always seems to be playing some kind of luminous Irish, like <laughs> pixie woman, you know? Well, I know that she does look like that, but you know what I mean? Like in the Grand Budapest Hotel as well, she's just in it to be this sort of perfect, like womanly, yes, you know, absolutely. otherworldly yeah, yeah. creature. 
it, I don't know, it looked a bit too picture postcard, pretty, like bubblegum, fluffy nonsense. But if you do that really well, then it's good, you know? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, maybe if you want to check it out. I think it's, yeah, it's refreshingly, like, not that movie. It's not grim or hard work. It's just a very well-told story, which is <laughs> probably well, the, the, bl- you want. the blandest and b- yeah. best compliment I can give it. It's just good. Um, so continue our exploration of Oscar-y films. Trumbo, Brian Cranston is up for Best Actor for his depiction of Trumbo, who is a Hollywood screenwriter from the, well, starts in the 40s, moves into the 50s, Dalston Trumbo. And it's about his tussling with the anti-communist sentiment in America because he was a paid-up commie and wanted to destroy America. And the righteous people of the House um, Un-American Activities Committee zeroed in on him and a few other Hollywood screenwriters and got them onto a blacklist, preventing them from working for a few years. And it was a big deal. Upset a lot of people. And this movie dramatizes that period in his life. Here is a clip of him discussing with another screenwriter played by Louis C.K., who is a kind of composite character, um, about how they're going to fight the good fight. No, you know what it is? I don't trust you. Well, I'd say go on, but I'm afraid he will. Look, I know what I am, okay? I want this whole country to be different, top to bottom. If I get what I want, nobody gets their own lake. Well, that would be a very dull life. Yeah, for you, not for the guys who built this. If I'm wrong, tell me, but ever since I've known you, you talk like a radical. But you live like a rich guy. That is true. Well, I don't know that you're... I don't think you're willing to lose all of this just to do the right thing. Well, I despise martyrdom. And I won't fight for a lost cause. So you're right. I'm not willing to lose it all. Certainly not them. But I am willing to risk it all. That's where the radical and the rich guy make a perfect combination. The radical may fight with the the purity of Jesus. But the rich guy wins with the cunning of Satan. What? Just please shut up. So Danny and I saw this the other day. I think we both didn't think it was that good. No, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. It was interesting (laughs) to see it after Spotlight because they're two uh, movies based on real events. And the thing that was so great about Spotlight is that well, it's kind of like what you say about Brooklyn about how it avoids the obvious pitfalls, and this just doesn't. It's just stumbling <laughs> straight into all the obvious pitfalls right away. Yeah, it's like a combination of the problems that you have with bad biopics and uh, also with like bad man versus the system movies. The premise of it sounds so inherently fascinating that it's very disappointing how generic the film that they make out of it is. Yeah. The main character is this really eccentric communist screenwriter. I don't know the last time you saw a movie about a communist was. Uh, and he like writes in the bathtub and stuff. And the period in American history in which the film is set is incredibly fascinating. The like post-war period where everyone got went totally crazy over communists. But they've turned it into this film, which feels like they took the Wikipedia article about that part of his life and fed it into a Hollywood script generating machine. Somehow, even though you've never uh, seen this story, you feel like you've seen it a hundred times. You just feel like you're learning the barest bones of the facts. You don't feel like you're getting any insight into who the various characters are like. And it's got it's got some like composite characters who aren't real. And it's got some other people who are very well known in it, like Edward G. Robinson and John Wayne. 
um, and gossip columnist Hedda Hopper. Um, and you don't get a sense of who these people were. You only get a sense of what function they're serving in the movie. Brian Cranston, you know, I don't think it's like an outrage that he's up for best actor or anything for Trumbo, but I felt like the role is, he's kind of um, playing it with absolute relish, but I don't think it's meeting him halfway. He is basically portrayed as a kind of blustery old cranky dude who for the most part tosses off funny little comments to people and like says right things. And he indicates that he is willing to take on the system. But the opportunities the movie actually gives him to do that are quite few and far between. And he also is referred to repeatedly in the film as a radical because of his communist views. But he doesn't say anything radical. Like the communists are completely unheard of in public life now, either here or in the U.S., and even if you're a socialist, which I guess most people think of as like communist, but like down a notch, um, that is considered to be quite radical. And it's an opportunity to have portrayed on screen someone who is a genuinely a communist and had those views and explore what that was like and have that discussion. You know, what is the difference between what a communist wants America to be like and what a capitalist wants it to be like? But instead, they have one bit where he talks to his daughter and it's like, oh, if you'd share your lunch with a boy at school, that like you're a communist, you know, and that's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And it's failing to engage with the audience because, uh, I don't know, it's a bit patronizing because you... you, you in the role as an audience member, you don't really get to choose between the capitalists and the communists in the movie. It's just like, they're all nasty people on the House and American Activities Committee. They're just all suits. They want to shut down everyone. And it's turned into a very straightforward argument about the First Amendment. And it's like, he should be able to say what he wants. It's America. And that's why he's a hero, you know, because he refuses to back down. But, you know, he's standing on his beliefs. and But you, you learn so little about them. That, yeah, yeah. You know? No, exactly. It's it like, has it, no faith in his views. You know, it doesn't express them. Well, it's hard to understand. It doesn't really contextualize anything. So yeah. it's hard to get a uh, grips on like the story because you don't really understand the climate or like the motivations of people. It's just like done quite clumsily with like newsreel footage. It's a movie that tells you what's going on rather than shows you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And they have a line right at the beginning in the words that come up that say something like a lot of people join the Communist Party like after the rise of fascism to fight fascists. And there's this kind of implication that, oh, he's just a communist because he's really an anti-fascist, you know, and that's what it means. And that's why there were so many communists around, you know. So don't be too scared that the fact that like he says communist all the time. Yeah, so it's just a strangely apolitical movie given that the subject matter is so political. The storytelling of the film is kind of a mess uh, and it's a function of that um, or it's a result of that classic biopic problem where they just tick off the various events in the life and you just feel like you're kind of trundling through them and every scene takes place two years later than the previous scene. So you're never kind of settling into anything because they've got a lot of ground to cover in a couple of hours. So it kind of skips through. And towards the end of the movie, Trombo makes this speech, which is a real life speech that he made in 1970, where he talks about the human cost of the blacklist. But I felt like the film doesn't show you that cost very much. Like for Trombo, the stakes seem to be remarkably low. Uh, he goes to prison at one point for about a year, but it, he seems fine. Doesn't seem that bad. <laughs> yeah, it seems, seems <laughs> he sort okay. of comes out. That's quite early on the film. He comes out and it's okay. And Basically, the worst thing that happens to him, like the worst place the movie puts him in is he has to move from his giant house to a sort of normal sized house. Oh, God. And instead of working on prestige pictures, he's working on not very good pictures. I know. And so, I don't know, oh. he's blacklisted, so he can't work, but, it, but, it, but he's actually working too much and he's kind of cranky about that. <laughs> and, then, you know, that's obviously what he was doing, you know, in the real life story. 
but it turns from halfway through it kind of pivots from being a movie about one man versus a system to being about one man versus his like overloaded work and how his family copes with it uh and yeah i don't know it doesn't have it, yeah the reduces impact. the stakes and then sort of enlarges them towards the end in a sort of you know yeah exactly the end fashion. is like this is how important the film you just saw was but you didn't really see any of that stuff so when he's in prison, there's very little of the film that shows what life is like in prison. But there is this one scene where he's confronted by this incredibly angry black guy who works in the office. And it's a bit like it reminded me of um, 21 Jump Street. You know, Ice Cube plays the angry b- black police captain. It's like a parody of that character. But instead, this last character is just in the film. And the, the, the effect of it is pretty racist. You know, yeah, he's such yeah, a stereotype. Yeah. He's just this furious black dude who's like, I kill a white man and I do it again. You know, it's like a, it's like yeah, a Key and really Peele sketch. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> it's, and not only is it that weird, but it has no dramatic purpose. I mean, that guy does not come back <laughs> after that scene. You never see him again. And it's just bizarre. I don't know. It's a complete mystery why that's in the film. Uh, Trombo's family is a big focus of the film. I listened to Kermode's review of it today, and he was making this point about how the screenwriter wanted to show... Trombo is not an angelic character, but the effect on his family of like all the work he was doing and how he's a bit eccentric and stuff. So there's many, many scenes of um, him talking to his family. And as the film goes on, they get a bit more put out by his sort of cranky ways. But their characters are not developed. And all they get to do is react to what he is doing. And it kind of reinforces the standard Hollywood thing or the, the problem that exists. And the reason why so few films pass the Bechdel test is because women just stand around the men and they react to what the men do. Yeah. And there was one scene in the film where two women talk to each other, but they talk about him. So it doesn't count. <laughs> um, and it's also a scene that they probably should have cut because it's like, doesn't, you know, it's pointless. <laughs> um, Diane Lane, who plays his wife, is doing an excellent job with what is a really bad role. Uh, and yeah, she just looks at him. She looks proud when he does something heroic and she looks a bit worried when he's doing something a bit weird. And uh, <laughs> nothing that she does in the film has an impact on the events of the film. No. And there's one scene where it's supposed to be her big like character moment where she confronts him about it because he's being too much of a dick in the house. And uh, after that, just doesn't nothing changes, you know? Yeah. I mean, his circumstances of his life change, but he doesn't change. It doesn't like make him behave differently that then drives the plot. All right, final thing. I've got to say something positive because it's been much too ranty. And I didn't hate the film. I just found it disappointing. But I really enjoyed Helen Mirren, who plays Hedda Hopper, who's this kind of Rita Skeeter-esque gossip columnist, who's a real-life character and seems to have been quite larger than life in reality as well. And Helen Mirren completely chews up the role and she has a great time. And the movie is always lifts a bit when she's on screen because she's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's true. Yeah, I agree completely. What I would say is my... If I was like a hack writer, this is what I would say, is that there's a bit in the movie where I feel bad for script writers who have to write scripts about famous script writers because you're really setting yourself <laughs> up for a fool. Yeah, exactly. I'm a script writer, a genius script writer. It better be fucking good. Oh, no, it's not. You know. And there's a bit where Trumbo and Premager are discussing uh, the book Exodus, which he'll go on to adapt. And Premager's like, it is wall-to-wall shit or something. And then Trump is like, yes, but there's a good story in there. And it's like, you've accidentally reviewed your own film. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, yes, there's a good story somewhere in there. Absolutely. But, and, you know, while, as, while trying to cover everything, they cover nothing. Everything's paid lip service. Yeah. And thus making it just sort of... Yeah, ugh. that's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's I've just service. already sort of forgotten about it. This review will be just, for me... I listen to this when when Katie Edison puts together. I'd be like, "That's a lot of interesting stuff about that film. I might check it out because I will have totally forgotten it." But like, what? Louis C.K. was in that film? Yeah, it's a deeply conventional film about a radical man. <laughs> it makes which doesn't make sense. Yeah. 
Yesterday I bumped into Imelda Staunton She was up with her dog and we got talking I asked her what she does when she isn't acting She said she likes podcasts for relaxing Imelda, when you're in the mood What do you listen to? She said I listen to one podcast I listen to one podcast All the other ones can kiss my asses I listen to one podcast Film chat, film chat, film chat, film chat, film chat Okay guys, we are having to wrap up the podcast, unfortunately. We're both too hungry to continue. We've got to go eat. But uh, thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks very much for listening. Um, for those of you excited to check out Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, we've got an exclusive clip, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is how you're supposed to say that on the radio, of one of its stars, Sam Riley, promoting it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, so enjoy that. Enjoy Sam Riley. I don't know what happened to his voice. I think he smokes a bit too much. Yes. Yeah, so enjoy that. Uh, and I'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Hello, I'm here with Sam Riley, who stars as Mr. Darcy in the upcoming film Prime Presence Zombies. Sam, what attracted you to the role? To be able to play Mr. Darcy... You know, as a samurai sword wielding <laughs> zombie killer. What's not to like? I see. And how do you go about preparing for this role? I, I, I worked with a movement coach from uh, Central S- School of Drama. Mm-hmm. I was kind of relieved I didn't go to drama school after that. Although it was very helpful, it's it were it, it kind of it was kind of embarrassing to begin with because, well, first of all, we got a raven into a room and I just sort of studied but they're incredible creatures they're huge they're much bigger than a crow and they have very strong personalities they're quite vain which I tried to incorporate and then the then then the raven left and then I sort of tried to sort of move in a way like a raven by the end of the session I was actually running around a room flapping my arms. sounds unorthodox um, how did you go about picking your costume? It sort of developed. I came over quite a lot of times to London and I, I tried some, there were some crazy uh, looks. I mean, I had uh, at one stage I had, you know, pointy ears with hair coming out of it and a sort of gray, grayish wig. And, the, and it's in the end, they from having masses on, they sort of gradually toned it, toned it down and brought it, brought it down and uh, I think it was Rob Stromberg's idea and Angelina's that it he was in the end when he's humans more human even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more plus Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And then some of the versions that we, that we tried.